The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code GIST at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. And by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. Season 1 is available now, so listen and find out why a 70-year-old alien recording seems to be killing people. Search for The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, November 20th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Do you remember the 1% Doctrine? That was the name of the Ron Suskind book, and it described Dick Cheney's mindset about threats. If there is a 1% chance that America would be blown up or harmed or something like that, we have to treat it as a certainty. Now, I was thinking about the 1% Doctrine as it relates to current politics. And not threats, well, not external threats per se, but the persistence of Martin O'Malley. Martin O'Malley is polling, I have some of the latest polls, a Bloomberg overall Democratic presidential nomination poll puts him at 3%. Then if he goes state by state, in New Hampshire, he's polling at 5 in Florida, 4 in Colorado, Quinnipiac says he's at 2 in New Jersey, Fairleigh Dickinson says he's at 2 If we could just tamp this guy down, if we could just tamp down the 2 or 3 or 5%, we could eliminate Martin O'Malley from taking up a third of at least our debate time. And for a while, that's all I thought it was, that we would eliminate the amount of time that a moderator returned to Martin O'Malley and say, Martin O'Malley, what do you think? Like, anyone cares. But it's more than that. Because today it was announced that Martin O'Malley had qualified for federal matching funds. Now, all the press that cover this at all, they covered it pretty much commensurate with his standing in the New Hampshire poll, 5%. All the press that covered it said, basically, this is a sign that his campaign was doomed. You know what else was a sign that his campaign was doomed? Everything else related to the Martin O'Malley campaign. He's raised $3.3 million. And how federal matching funds work is that up to $250 individual donations, he'll be matched on a federal level. Wait, what does that mean? Well, taxpayers will pay Martin O'Malley to run for president. This is a horrible expenditure. You and I paying millions, possibly millions of dollars to Martin O'Malley so he could stay in the race for no reason, take attention away from candidates who are much more plausible, and generally burnish his credentials for whatever job he gets in the corporate world. This federal matching funds for Martin O'Malley is the worst expenditure of federal funds since they they gave a million dollars to the Woodstock Museum. In fact, if you ask the Woodstock attendee their favorite band or most American voters their response to the O'Malley candidacy, they'd give you the same answer. Who? In fact, if you ask the Woodstock attendee their favorite band or CBS Democratic debate viewers what they thought of O'Malley's talking points, they'd give you the same answer. Canned heat. In fact, if you followed up with Woodstock attendees and those Americans who said, who about Martin O'Malley, and asked them, well, why do you say that? They also might cite, I can't explain. Martin O'Malley is worse than a bridge to nowhere. 
He is a cul-de-sac to a corporate consulting gig. This is a kind of corporate welfare to the individual. They're helping him with his speaking fees. We're helping him with his future consulting fees. We're just keeping him in the public eye a little while longer so that maybe, I don't know, he'll become the secretary of HUD and we have to sit through some more blood, sweat, and tears. I think I've branded myself as the podcaster who is most against Martin O'Malley's federal matching funds. And in the spiel today, I look at the bright side of everything in the world. But first, one of the great dramatists working today, a conversation with David Hare. And now a word from our sponsor, but I want to fold in some listener feedback. Got this review on iTunes, and I recommend that you give us reviews on iTunes, possibly to counteract a review from Media Messengers. Arrogant and boring, I found this guy because, me, I was searching for podcasts with Ben Carson. I found this boring, arrogant little man, me, not little, instead. At the end of his dry cast, skipped a lot of it, he tries to do a rap dissing Dr. Carson. Really, really whack. Not just whack, but lame. The type of person who thinks they're funny, but is really just a dork with a platform. Don't diss the doc. He's an actual lifesaver who actually saved lives. Tautology. Not just some yuppie with a podcast. Antiquated term. But I want to go back a sentence. He's really just a dork with a platform. What he's not understanding when he says dork with a platform is that these days every dork can have a platform. Just make the platform beautiful. And that's where Squarespace comes in. Want to spend your time dissing me and calling me a yuppie on iTunes? What if you had a good website dedicated to that? Because Squarespace has professionally designed, easy-to-use tools. It doesn't need any coding. And you also get a free domain if you sign up for a year. So start your free trial today at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. So when you are as acclaimed and accomplished as my guest David Hare is, for me, the interviewer using words like acclaimed and accomplished just seem inadequate. I'll list some of his works of drama. Plenty, Skylight, Amy's View, The Judas Kiss, Stuff Happens, The Vertical Hour, The Blue Room. His screenplays include Plenty, The Reader, The Hours. David Hare's new memoir is The Blue Touch Paper. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. And that, The Blue Touch Paper, it's, it's that which is incendiary. Yeah, I have to explain the title to American listeners because in England, fireworks are sold with the instruction, light the blue touch paper and retire. I think in America, it's called the fuse, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But my American publishers have very kindly agreed to my keeping such a poetic title and not calling my book the fuse. Well, it's good to work a little bit, I think, for all works. But wait a minute, when you say touch the uh, the blue touch paper and retire, is that to imply, well, that's it? This is the drop the mic moment? No. Well, <laughs> I can't no, work again after it, this one? No, the book is what's called a bildungsroman, mm -hmm. uh, meaning it's about the making of a writer. And so what I, what I suppose what I'm saying is this was my launch. And the form of the book is to both tell my personal story to t for the first 30 years of my life, my artistic story, which is how I became a playwright and how probably after 10 years of being a playwright, I finally wrote Plenty and the first play with which I was satisfied. And then thirdly, a little bit of the social and political history of the time, because where the book ends in 1979 with the end of my first marriage and the performance of Plenty, 
happens to coincide with Margaret Thatcher's election. So my life has a sort of hinge halfway through. You just said that Plenty was the first play you were wholly satisfied with. Why the dissatisfaction with Knuckle? Was it because, I mean, it was a thumb in the eye. Was it because more how it was received or how it was executed? No, it's, I quote Valérie, Paul Valérie, the French poet, who says that the purpose, or sorry, the intention of art is to give the effect without the boredom of its conveyance. And I think that's such a beautiful thing. And so I was technically a clumsy playwright for many years because I was learning the craft. And so Knuckle, which was a play full of, you know, violent, strong feeling and whose sentiments I would wholly endorse till this day, which was indeed prophetic. Nevertheless, as a piece of dramaturgy, was pretty inept. Plenty was the first play where I felt the technique actually matched the intentions of what the work was trying to say. The ideal is that plays change minds. Sometimes they prompt walkouts. Are there instances that you know where one of your works has changed minds? Uh, I do get people who come up to me in the street and say, you're David Hare. And they say, I left my husband. I left my wife. I saw your play and it changed my life. I don't necessarily take that as the greatest compliment because, you know, an awful lot of things can change your life, you know? Yeah. But that doesn't validate it as a work of art. What validates it as a work of art is if it has a metaphorical power of not just being about itself. You know, I've written about a lot of journalistic subjects, apparently journalistic subjects, Chinese Revolution, Aid to the Third World, Financial Crisis, Privatization of the Railways. But in each case, if the play was to be any good, it had to be not just about itself, but it had to suggest that it was also about other things. And that's what art does. And seem it has to have a metaphorical element. And when it has that element, then it may affect all kinds of people in all kinds of different ways. And that's what the great art does. And another subject you write about explicitly and implicitly, feminism. Women, you write excellent women's characters, and I was thinking about this. Well, is the better question, how do you write such good female characters, or why do other male writers have such a hard time? They are half of the uh, human population. Yes, it, ab- well, as I say in the book, it just absolutely mystifies me. Yeah. It just seemed, I think it was something I was very aware of when I first went to the theater, that there tended to be a very angry man at the center of the stage, and he was called the star. And then there were some put-upon women on either side of him, and they were either serving him tea or being told that they were ineffective human beings, you know? And there were tirades were being launched against them. And it just seemed to me completely potty when I had been brought up by women and my father had been an absent father. He was a sailor, so he wasn't much around, and he was behaving as sailors do. He was pretty indifferent to his family. It was the company of women on which I thrived when I was young. So feminism then burst at the end of the 60s, early 70s. It was the most exhilarating movement. And you would have to say it was one of the most successful political movements of my time. Mm -hmm. In other words, in my time, the role of women in society, in Western societies at least, has been completely transformed. Of course, I've wanted to write about that because that's been what's been happening around me. And I didn't want women just to be trapped as what I call manly love objects. You know, the stories in my plays are not about men who happen to be in love with women who are standing there just being goddesses. They're active, they're agents, they're the people who make the things happen in the plays. 
I know that Bill Nye has been in a number of your shows, but when I think of the actors that are in David Hare's shows, maybe it's just me and I know the movies and I've seen the New York shows. Women, this Meryl Streep's been in a bunch and Nicole Kidman you write for and Julianne Moore, who's blurbs your book. But are there as many men and I'm just not noticing that? Yeah, there are. Yeah, there yeah. are as many men. In other words, you know, I mean, two of the most remarkable performances in my work, Anthony Hopkins, certainly when he played in Pravda, where he, which was a extremely early attack on Rupert Murdoch, more or less 25 years before it became commonplace to attack Rupert Murdoch. That was in 1985 at the National Theatre, and I think is one of the greatest performances I've ever seen in my life. And certainly in Skylight, you know, it's either been Bill Nye or it's been Michael Gambon playing that part. And in both cases, they're just, you know, I've worked with Bill Nye 10 times. Really? So, yeah, I do write for men, but I also hope I write for women. And again, Kerry Mulligan in uh, Skylight was, as far as I'm concerned, just about as good as you can be on a stage. This was the great, this was the whole trouble with business and you. You looked down always on the way we did things, on the way things are done. You could never accept the nature of business. I mean, finally, that's why you had to leave. Well, I must say. I mean. I never knew that was the reason. All right, I'm sorry. I never knew that was why I had to leave. I put it badly. Badly? You did. I thought I left because your wife discovered I'd been sleeping with you for over six years. I mean, well, yes, that as well. That played a part. Tell in the book the story of the fact that I invited Alfred Hitchcock to Cambridge when I was a student, and he came. And we had four idyllic hours of just listening to this great man talking to us. And uh, at a certain point, he said that charm was unfakeable. Mm. In other words, the public liked Grace Kelly because Grace Kelly was indeed likable. They didn't like Tippi Hedren because Tippi Hedren wasn't likable. And Hitchcock said, I couldn't make them like her. He said, there is only one actor so great that he can make you like him, although he is not even a likable person. And he said to me, guess who it is? And I said, don't tell me it's Cary Grant. And he replied, correct. <laughs> so can you add to that list now, knowing what you know about unlikable actors and someone well, who can make the public who can, like them? Who can make the public love them? No, yeah. I, I, I am very much of the school that believes that there is something in the actor itself, herself, himself, to which the public is responding. I think that Judy Dench, you know, if you meet Judy Dench as a person, she is just as splendid and many faceted and brilliant and funny as she appears to be on the screen. Maggie Smith is just heaven to spend time with and extremely cutting and witty and clever. And there's something in those people to which the audience is responding. And it's a real thing that's coming through from them. The idea I find completely obnoxious and offensive this idea that actors are empty people and that they simply inhabit characters and when they inhabit characters, they come to life, but when you meet them, you know, they're empty shells. I've met very, very few empty shells in all the actors that I've met. I mean, Bill Nye in person is one of the funniest people you could possibly hope to meet. He's just hilarious. He's never given by me lines that are any funnier than the ones that he thinks up for himself. Do you ever write shows, not with an actor in mind for your part, but because of an actor? You start there. No. You start with an idea. I start with an idea, and then when I finished it, it may become obvious. You know, Bill Nye in the Warwicker series, the, t the three television films we made about MI5, he said to me, you, you must have written me this for me. 
And I said, why? And he said, well, the first scene is he comes out of MI5, he lights a cigarette, he's wearing a dark suit and a black overcoat, and he walks across the road. And Bill said, the minute I read that, he thought, I'm in. Uh, I'll do this, because Bill likes wearing the clothes. The sun will rise in the morning. I'm going to have a drink at six. That's my faith. Really? A lot of people in your church, are there? Most people. Most people are in my church. But I genuinely didn't write it for him. But maybe sort of 40 or 50 pages in, I went, there's only one person who's going to be able to play this. But then you also note that the writing process is such that the characters, even if you start with the idea of writing a character, the characters do what they want, the ideas do what they want. And you've given yourself, can you corral it more than, you know, I think you were writing about Slag, which is one of your early works. That's when you discovered it. But now that you've been doing it so long, can you corral them any better than you could in the early days? No, and it's not just the characters. It's everything. If it's any good, your imagination's writing it. And you can't really say to an actor why the line has to be said in the exact way. If an actor paraphrases my line, I have to correct them and say, no, it has to be the way I wrote it. They will perfectly reasonably say, why does it have to be the way I wrote it? If, if you say it the way I say it, I'm saying the same thing. To which you reply, yeah, but it's not the same rhythm. And if the rhythm's not the same, then style is compromised. And so the mystery of style is precisely that. It's a mystery. I can't tell him why I want it like that, but I want it like that because it pleases me. It doesn't go any further than that. And so style is no more than it pleasing you yeah. for reasons that you can't define. So my last question is this. Before we sat down, I mentioned to you, I listened to this 1989 recording of Desert Island Discs. It's been 25 years. I'll give you an extra disc to put on a desert island. Can be of the last 25 years or any piece of music that's just struck your fancy, but perhaps was recorded before 1989. Do you have a nominee? My favorite piece of music, which I listen to obsessively and cannot stop listening to, is Donna Kroll singing A Simple Twist of Fate. And I think one of the really corrupt things about being so old is I've sort of come to prefer cover versions. Yeah. It's terrible. Uh, you know, why would I ever listen to Dylan in Donna Kroll's version? But I sort of prefer it. And do you know I actually prefer Annie Lennox singing White A Shade of Pale? in spite of the fact that Procol Harum singing White A Shade of Pale is the background to my adolescence. But I think there is something about reinterpretation as you get older that is deeply satisfying. And, uh, yeah, can I be taken out, please, to Donna Kroll singing Simple Twist of Fate? We can do that. They sat together in the park As the evening sky grew dark she looked at him and he felt a spark tingle to his bones It was then he felt alone And where's she gone straight and washed out for a simple twist of fate David Hare, author of his new memoir, The Blue Touch Paper. Thank you so much. That was really good fun. Thank that you very excellent. much. That was excellent. I so enjoyed it. Stopped into a strange hotel The neon burning bright He felt the heat of the night Hit him like a freight train Moving with a simple twist Today's show is brought to you by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theatre. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. 
I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Uh, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. The finale drops on Sunday, so catch up on earlier episodes and get ready to be surprised. Search for The Message on iTunes. I'll help you with that search. It's right around number one. And now the spiel. We're wrong about all that is right. Americans say we're on the wrong track. Americans say their children will be less prosperous than they are. Americans fear that the country's in decline. Well, I have a theory. A theory that explains so much of the worry in the world, so much American angst. My theory is something no politician dare touch. My theory is a truth that journalists, the good journalists, realize but can't monetize. Here is my theory to explain why so many are depressed, downtrodden, and disconsolate. Are you ready? The people are wrong. Well, the majority of them are just wrong. I will acknowledge when I pronounce them wrong, there is a lot of nuance to the idea of wrong. And yes, some portion of the population does, empirically speaking, have it pretty damn bad. But who's going to speak the hard truths to the majority of the others? It's me. Problem is, catering to the hurt is more remunerative than commending them to the cure. Also, there's really good research that indicates that no one ever changes their mind about anything ever. I might be overstating that a little bit, but basically it's true. And basically, it's just so much more important what people feel than what actually is. Data point one. Brookings and the Public Religion Research Institute has out the sixth annual American Values Survey. Among the findings of the Americans' Value Survey is that 7 in 10 Americans believe that we are in an economic recession. We are not in an economic recession. We are currently in the 72nd month of expansion. I'll divide for 12 by a 6 years. Now, it's a shitty, crappy, underperforming expansion, but it's an expansion. Yeah, the gains wiped out by the Great Recession haven't all returned, but it's not a recession. It's more than half a decade worth of expansion. So remember how bad we felt during the recession? It was logical. It's right to feel that bad. You know how bad we still feel? That is wrong. It is wrong to feel this bad. It is wrong for so many of us to keep feeling so bad about the economy for so long. Now, I know all the counter arguments. Oh, that's easy for you to say. Oh, what about the people that are hurting? My, I would not be raising this point if three in 10 people thought we were in a recession. I would not be raising this point if seven of 10 people say it's hard for three or two or four or however many of 10 people. We just have the vast majority of Americans empirically stating 
that things are worse than they are, that things are on a downward slope when, in fact, things are on an upward slope. My problem isn't that the upward slope isn't upward enough. It's that they think things are bad when, in fact, things maybe just aren't as good as they could be. Let's take my city, New York City. The mayor of New York City is experiencing really, really low poll numbers because he keeps talking about the haves and the have-nots. And he's convinced everyone that New York is doing poorly, that New York is just not an affordable place to live. I'm not going to say it's easy to live here, but here are the facts. The unemployment rate is 5.2. That's the lowest in seven years. Developers have delivered 3,000 units of affordable housing. That's more than the last six years combined. Crime is as exactly, almost as exactly low as it's always been for year after year after year. Still, you talk about how bad it is, eventually people will believe you. Well, let's talk about crime, as I just did with Mayor de Blasio from New York. The American Values Survey showed that there was a substantial uptick in concern over crime from 2012 to 2015. There should not be. There's a lot of talk of the Ferguson effect, but crime in America is exceptionally low. There is no Ferguson effect. In some cities, things are bad. But the Brennan Center of NYU crunched all the numbers, looked at the 30 biggest cities. They found that the murder rate was up in 14 cities, but it was down in 11 cities. The median age in America is 36 years. In the span of the last 36 years, violent crime has been cut by more than a third. Property crime has been cut in half. And murder and non-negligent manslaughter has been cut by more than a half. True, I'll give you all the caveats. If you're over 70 years old, crime is a lot worse now than it was when you were a kid. But for the vast majority of Americans, the crime picture, what they claim to be extremely worried about, is an excellent, excellent picture. Let's go to another thing that this survey shows. The number of Americans saying illegal immigration is a major problem increased substantially over the last three years. Again, that is wrong. There was a slightly different question that breaks down along party lines, and 59% of Republicans and 43% of Democrats say that to them, immigration is a critical issue. Well, here are the facts. There are more Mexicans leaving than coming to the United States. The Pew Center reports just came out this week. I think it came out the same day as that survey that there was a net loss of Mexicans in the United States, a net loss of 140,000 people from 2009 to 2014. A million Mexicans have left the U.S. from those years, and most of them did that because they wanted to do it. Things are better in Mexico. Things are less desperate. Very importantly, there are lower birth rates. There are fewer mouths to feed, and it's less necessary for Mexicans to have to cross the border. A lot of them do. But as we're reporting, more leave than come in. And since we're talking about anxiety and this survey, we have to talk about an issue that reared its head in a horrific way since the study was released, terrorism. Now, I'm not going to say that terrorism isn't a problem, but for the last 15 years in the United States, it's been barely a problem. The United States has dropped 8,289 bombs or strikes on ISIS, and ISIS has killed something like eight Americans. So U.S. munitions are killing ISIS versus ISIS killing Americans at a ratio that is easily in the hundreds and probably in the thousands to one. I'm not minimizing the Paris attacks, but do the Paris attacks show that it could happen here? Well, I'm going to concede that it could happen here. Of course it can happen here. But why do the Paris attacks show that? 
The Paris attacks were about a Belgian-born, Belgian-jailed, Syrian-trained, French watchlist-evading ringleader freely moving across porous European borders. How does that show it could happen here? Yes, we have a good indication that ISIS now has more ambition. But the Russian bombing showed us that. We didn't have the same sort of concern and every presidential candidate giving a stump speech and Obama giving a press conference where he was attacked and pilloried by Fox News and Republicans. That didn't happen after the Russian bombing. Maybe this outpouring is due to the fact that an American was killed in the attacks. So that underlines the threat to America. Although before Paris... Three American residents were killed in those Beirut attacks. Remember them? Probably didn't know the three Americans were killed. They were residents of Dearborn, Michigan. I couldn't figure out from the scant news coverage the residency status of Leila Taleb and Hussein Mustafa, a husband and wife also from Dearborn, who were killed in Beirut. The point is, it does seem like our feelings are overriding the facts. Our feelings are fear about Paris, though not about Beirut, not so much about Russia. And maybe these feelings have to do with the fact that the people in Paris were killed in a way that maybe we can identify with. Maybe Americans hear Beirut and wrongly say, oh, that's a place of terror and horror. They hear Paris and they say, I have visited there or I'd like to visit there. Or look at the white skin of most of the victims of people who were killed. The point is this. As with immigration, as with the economy, now too with the fight on terror, how we feel gets most of the attention, not how things are. Now here's the point where I acknowledge the flaws of my argument. One, feelings are real. If we feel anxious, that is not good. Two, some of these feelings do correlate to empirical experience, right? Of the 70% of people who say we're in a recession, I'm sure a large percentage of them are really struggling to get by, and that's important, that's a problem. And three, the world is a scary place, and the potential for harm is real, even if the harm is yet to be felt right here, right now. But there's an old saying that a recession is when your neighbor's out of work and a depression is when you are. Well, now we live in a globally interconnected village and everyone's our neighbor. In fact, I am much closer to people I've never met in real life than a few of my actual neighbors. I think we're so in tune with the world and all the trouble in the world that it leads to a little bit of empathy, but also to a warped sense of how widespread hardship is. Well, widespread with an asterisk, widespread among people generally in our communities who we can relate to. My take is a reversal of that time-honored response you always get whenever you accuse a real pessimist of being a downer. So what I just say is, I'm not an optimist. I'm just a realist. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi always stops to smell her blessings. Just executive producer Andy Bowers believes the glass is half empty, but that federal matching funds will soon fill the glass. The gist, we're like the cat who knows to just hang in there until cucumber. Holy shit, it's a cucumber. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru. And thanks for listening.